Um, we're in a series right now. It's just a little short series before Thanksgiving, kind of prepping us. Prepping us for what Thanksgiving brings, which is great food and maybe just a little bit of family drama. Uh, and uh, <laughs> this series kind of is setting us up for Christmas, which I'm super excited about. So I hope you guys join us for one of the many services we're going to have either here or at our downtown campus. It's really exciting. So I'm Danny. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited that you guys are here. So thank you so much. Um, this series today is, uh, I, I like it a lot, I especially like today's talk. I think it fits really well with what a lot of people are dealing with. We're going to talk about truth. And truth is kind of a tricky word to talk about. You think it's pretty basic, but it's really not once you get into it. But the entire concept of the series is discussing how better we can be both with God, so us with God, and us with each other. So it's entitled with, because at Thanksgiving, we're certainly going to be with some other people. And uh, obviously, uh, if you're here at church today, you're coming at least in part to, to participate in uh, an experience that perhaps will connect you better with God. And so that's kind of what the series is about. Well, without truth, um, I'm just here to tell you it's absolutely impossible. You cannot connect with God or really with anyone if you don't understand truth. And yet truth has really been on trial for many, many years uh, in our community. So I just want to give you uh, some stuff and we're going to have a conversation. I'm not, um, I'm not trying to pretend like, like everyone in the room is going to leave here on the same page. That's not my goal anyhow. My goal is just to present what the Bible says and to uh, hopefully encourage you to have your own spiritual conversation with God and maybe even with someone else. So uh, let's start. In our postmodern world today that denies truth can even be known, the question is more important than ever, what is truth? And so what I mean by that is that in our world right now, uh, there, is a, there is a very common belief system, and I guarantee there's people in this room who believe it, that uh, truth is, is really unknown, that there is no absolute truth. And that uh, what's true for you may be true for you, but it doesn't necessarily have to be true for me. And this concept is kind of difficult, and it's, it's not that hard to argue, actually. I'm just going to give you a little, I'm just give you a quick side note. So if someone tells you there's no absolute truth, they're stating it like it's absolutely true. So, <laughs> like, there is absolutely no, tr no truth, there's no source of truth, there's no baseline for truth. Absolutely not. Awesome. But what if you're wrong? Because your truth is your truth. What if there is an absolute truth for me that reigns over all else? Well, that can't be. Well, you just, you're right. It can't be. There, there is a truth, and biblically, it's really not that hard to understand. But let's start just back in culture, just, just back in time. Let's look at the Greeks. The Greeks loved this stuff. And the Greeks' word for truth is aletheia, or aletheia. Okay? Aletheia, which literally means to unhide or hiding nothing. That's what the word means. True for them was unhiding or hiding nothing. It conveys the thought that truth is always there, always open and available for all to see with nothing being hidden or obscured. So it has this idea of, of, of what is and what's real and, and what's present. Well, what's opposite in the, the Greek culture for truth is a word that we would translate as oblivion. And this helps you understand what they thought truth was and what, what, what actually truth really is. I think they nailed this right on the head. Truth is what exists. Oblivion is what's not. And what's so great about it is the version of oblivion they used actually rendered the word forgetfulness. 
And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you understand that they have Hades and they have the river and that when you walk into the river, when you walk into Hades, you move into a place of oblivion where you forget everything, ready? Including even who you are. The opposite of truth is forgetfulness, according to the Greeks. The opposite of truth or what is, what's reality, is nothing. It's a powerful, powerful thought, especially when you realize the God who knows everything says in his word, I am a God who remembers. I am a God, and I think it's in the Psalms, who never forgets. That's because he is God of truth. He is the opposite of forgetfulness. The Hebrew word for truth is emeth, which means firmness, constancy, and duration. Such a definition implies an everlasting substance and something that can be relied upon. Uh, This idea is kind of the idea of true north. It's a constancy. It's a firmness. It applies to everybody. Based on true north, everything else is measured. When you decide that true north is not really true north, then you can put true north wherever you want. Then east, west, south, none of it really matters because true north is just based on where I believe it is. It's not constant. It's not firm. It doesn't last the duration. Such a definition uh, is, is, is really common, unfortunately, especially when it comes to morality. Mm. Everything was light till then, right? It's like the cookies just came out of the oven and they're still too hot to eat, but I'm still going to shove them in your mouth. <laughs> like it was sweet and soft and smelled good, but that just burnt my tongue. I understand. We're going to have some milk in a minute, but not yet. The reality is that your morality and my morality are most likely measured by your truth and my truth. The decisions you've made are measured by what you believe to be true. This is good for me. This is bad for me. This is good for my family, my spouse, my kids, the people in my life. This is bad for things in my life. And then, based on those things that I believe are true, I then act or behave. Morality is based on truth. And without a firmness or constancy or duration, constancy or duration, then, of course, morality, like a moving true north, can just be based on whatever I feel like at the moment. As one philosopher put it, from a philosophical perspective, there's really three simple ways to define truth. And I'm not going to get into all these because they're, they're all sermons in themselves. But when you really break it down, there's three primary arguments. Truth is that which corresponds to reality, like we just talked about. Truth is that which matches its object. And truth is simply telling it like it is. In defining truth, it's often for folks and helpful to know what truth is not. Let me give you a few things. These are a few arguments, actually, real arguments. A few of them I've heard in person and a few that came up in a survey that was done about what truth is. And uh, this particular professor uh, wrote a paper on the things truth is not that people believe truth is. So first, truth is not simply whatever works. I wish it was because I would be so truthful all the time. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. I want to do whatever it takes to get the job done. It's something that actually comes out of my mouth that I need to work on. Because if it's not true, then accomplishing it still makes whatever it takes a, a lie, an ends versus means type approach. In reality, lies can appear to work, but they are still lies and not the truth. Second, truth is not what makes people feel good. <laughs> How many people have you told you, like, but it just felt right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of places I could go with that, but I'm just going to leave it right there. Bad news can be true. Truth is not what the majority says is true. 
51% of people in a group can still reach a wrong conclusion, friends. <laughs> Truth is not what is comprehensive. A lengthy, detailed presentation can still result in a false conclusion. Truth is not defined by what is intended. This is usually the argument of most husbands. I know. You're going to have to pick a new one. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to be clear. That's not what I meant to do. Has any wife then went, well, then be on your way? No. <laughs> your good intentions don't define anyone's truth. <laughs> truth is not how we know. Truth is what we know. And lastly, truth is not simply what is believed. A lie believed is still a lie. So why is understanding what truth is and isn't so important? And the answer is quite simple, uh, and it has to do with consequences. Life has consequences for both being wrong or being right. That's how life works. That's what we teach our kids from a, a, a real uh, basic age, that if you do this thing, these are the consequences. If you do this, this thing, these are the consequences. If you don't understand truth, then you won't understand the consequences and why they're happening, which is why some of us in the room continue to be repeat offenders because you think it's the world out to get you when really you just don't understand the truth about the consequences because of the decisions that you've made. <sighs> I tried to spread that out through the whole room. I made a, couple of it, I made a little too much eye contact there, and people were like, that's not, that's not, that's not. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, do I do that? I do that. <laughs> so truth, truth is... Truth is, try to raise it up to a different level for a second. And <laughs> now you made me lose my spot. We're going to edit this part out of the video and start with this firm, powerful position right here. <laughs> Life is full of all kinds of consequences. It's full of all kinds of decisions we have to make. And scripture backs this up. This is what's so important is it's not just be good, kids, or these things will happen. It's not just behave or this world will, you'll, you'll fall out of rhythm, which we taught, teach a lot here, rhythm and harmony and that kind of thing. And that holiness is the bringing together of all those things. That's what holiness is for those who are new. I can't get on that soapbox right now, but holiness, harmony, wholeness, all those things. When you have holiness inside your marriage, you have harmony. That's what it is. That's the root essence of the word. When you, have, when you don't have holiness inside your marriage, you have a cacophony. It's the opposite of symphony. It, it, you, have a, you have brokenness, and for some reason, you and your wife just can't connect, and you don't know why you're so frustrated, and something happens at work, and you're just, ah, it's because your world is out of harmony or holiness. God's word backs up that truth has consequences, and it's part of what sets harmony, like the part. Couple verses that back that up. Romans 1:18 says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who listen, suppress the truth in unrighteousness." They don't just suppress the truth because they're broken or because they're childlike. They actually suppress the truth because it isn't it isn't valuable for them to find out where true north is. They want to be true north, and so in unrighteousness they suppress it. Romans 10, 6 through 8 says, He who will render to each person according to his deeds. You all in this room, by the way, have a bag of deeds. All of us in this room have a bag of how we behave or deeds. To those who perse 
to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Those are the things we've done that are good. Those are the things that we do that are in harmony and in holiness and in spirit likeness. Yet, those who are selfishly ambitious, center of the universe, their own true north, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. And the verse goes on to say, to them will be great consequences. For they are not following the truth. Now, this concept in many ways needs to be universal. And that's why for some people at this point, they can just try to jump off the truth train. Because they're like, well, what's true for you is not true for me. I don't know if I believe that. Let me give you just a quick illustration. Because I don't really need you to. (laughs) There's a story of an old man, an old Parisian man who loved his city. He was famous for his tours and his expression of how incredible the things that they had done in Paris over the years uh, had been preserved and, 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 and that you then could now experience. This young man from the country who had never been to the city heard of this old man, and he said to him, will you take me on the tour? And he said, sure. And so he took him first to the Louvre, and he showed him the sculptures and the paintings, and he told him the stories and how generation after generation of people working together, improving on one another, uh, created these incredible masterpieces and, and how this was an expression of humanity at the time and how it's just, it, just, it, it connects to people from centuries and centuries and centuries and, and generations and generations and generations. And, and this is what, this is how, this is why. After that, he took the old man to a, Great, or took the young man to a majestic symphony hall. And in the symphony hall, he allowed the music to roar. And then he would point out different places within the symphony where somebody was playing with somebody, where years and years of talent came to work together. And he would show how so many people with so much talent, let alone all the handcrafted instruments, not to mention the room that was built for such a sound as this. This is the what, this is the why, this is the how. He poured all that he had into the young man, and they walked quietly back. And as they got near the destination, when they would part, the old man turned to the young man, and he said, so what did you think? And the young man shrugged his shoulders and said, I didn't really like the Louvre. Seems really old. And the music was not really my thing, not really my style. And the old man said these words, that's okay. They weren't on trial. You were. See, truth, that's what truth does. It's not about your style. It's not about your belief system or what your, what your mammy taught you about how life works, what you learned from your life coach, what you got from that course you took in Dallas three weeks ago. Somebody in here is tripping out right now. They're like, oh, Oh, that's me. I just made that up, so just relax. <laughs> just come running up to the altar, flop around. And it's okay. I was, just go back. Back in the sea. Go back. Go back. <laughs> it's not about that stuff. Truth. <laughs> truth is not about that stuff. See, truth is, and I'll put the quote on the screen, truth is important not just because it's something you're searching for, which we all should do, but truth is important because it's something you're being measured against. That's why truth is important, because it's something that you're being measured against, and that something is Christ. Truth is Christ. John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus said to him, quite simply, 
It's like there's some verses in the Bible you're like, oh, man, kind of what do you mean here? He says, listen, listen. And he knows people are writing down because he knows you're going to listen to his words today. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the truth. I am what all things are measured against. I am true north, and so all creation is in harmony or disharmony with me. (laughs) That then means that knowing the truth or Jesus is the only thing that can set a life free. Life free from sin, free from condemnation, and free from death. Jesus himself talks about this in John 8, 31 through 34. Let me read it for you. He's talking to the Jews, and they were Jewish people who decided to believe in Jesus and yet didn't fully understand the the vastness of believing in the truth versus just believing in something that would help them get through the day. And this is what they said. He said, "So so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth And the truth will set you free. And then they responded like a lot of people probably in this room are having a tendency to respond very practically. And they said, whoa, whoa, they answered him. We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, being a slave to sin is the ultimate bondage. So when I talk about truth and I talk about the purpose of truth, what I'm talking about really is a sense of personal freedom to fulfill the life God has already built you and called you to fulfill. The freedom Jesus offers is a spiritual freedom from the bondage of sin that is released from the life cycle of habitual cacophony or lawlessness. He invites you into harmony and he says, come and be a part of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Then he closes the entire thing with an analogy, John 8, 35 and 36, we'll put it up. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free. He says, don't you see that what I do for you is the difference between a father and and an owner? Between a father and an owner. A father has a son, an owner has a slave. And even the best treated slave is still a slave. But the son is set free because he is part of the father's story. He is part of what the father's doing. And this is where a lot of people struggle because they don't understand that God is trying to set you free by restricting you to only worship and base your life off him. And you're like, yeah, it sounds kind of small. And, you know, I mean, there's got to be multiple ways. I mean, I do believe in something after life, but I can't, I don't really know if it's this. Look at, listen, listen, Okay. Think about for a, for a second the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt. Okay, this is all historical fact for those atheists in the room or people who are like, you're still using stuff I don't believe in. You do believe in this. These people come out of Egypt after 450 years of bondage and slavery. The only thing that they know is the whip. Millions of them move into the desert leaderless except for one old man with a stick. <laughs> God assesses the situation, moves in and says, hey, here's the 10 things you can do and can't do. Love your God, worship, 
serve, all these things. And here's some stuff. Listen, listen. Don't sleep with your, with your friend's wife. And people are like, what? what kind of restrictive God is this? I just got out of slavery. <laughs> Don't steal people's stuff. Okay? Don't steal people's stuff, man. And when you get angry, don't murder anybody. <laughs> now, I've had a lot of people say to me, lots of people, it's actually one of my favorite arguments because it's, it's so wonderful to walk them through this discussion. And they're like, listen, listen, your God is just really restrictive. I mean, 10 laws, 10 laws to fit everybody, man, woman, and child, different, different, different educational levels, different understandings. God just walks up and says, hey, nation of Israel, boom, 10 laws. And I'm like, yeah. Because without the 10 laws, they would have turned into like every other nation around them. They would have been pillaging and destroying and conquering. And they would have been absolute chaos and out of control. So God comes in and hands them 10 laws to survive. And then he's so serious about their survival, about their care, about his love for them in choosing him. That he then says, if you step outside the freedom within these 10 laws, you're going to die. People are like, can't do it. Can't do it, man. I mean, I sleep with somebody's wife and now I get killed. Can't do it. But you don't understand the laws, which, you know, hey, that's a separate sermon. But still, the laws, the laws, right? The laws are super, super clear. And the reason the laws are super clear and the consequences are clear is because God is bringing people into rhythm and into holiness. He's bringing people into a place where they can feel safe and be free. They're like, this is what I do. This is what I don't do. And everything else is just me. Have you met homes without rules and the kids they produce? It's crazy. I mean, it is sometimes I'm like, hey, like Jimmy's halfway up the wall and, and he's hanging from a curtain like Superman. I'm pretty sure he's going to choke himself. We don't say no to Jimmy. We say we have other ideas for Jimmy. Jimmy, maybe you should come down and play Superman on the floor. And I'm like, no, Jimmy's turning blue. I'd say no. <laughs> I would I'd say, stop it, Jimmy. Stop killing yourself. We don't say no to Jimmy. If he wants to kill himself, he can kill himself, okay? We don't say no to Jimmy. I, I don't understand. This is in a, in a really big spiritual supernatural level. This is what God is doing when he gives you these, these things. When he says, I am the only way, I am the only truth, I am the only life. What he's literally saying is, if you don't choose me, you will never experience the freedom that you could. And here's the big thing. And if you don't choose me, ready? You're going to die. You are going to die. The people you're raising in that mindset are going to die. This world that is, is every day decaying is going to die. And we have a God who says, I'm bringing freedom. And the only way I can pour this freedom in is through truth and through being the center and the focus. Because in reality, the only reason you don't want God to be the center and truth in your life is because you want you to be the center and truth of your life. How is that working out for everybody? This is who we serve. And this is what he wants, not to restrict us to some place of slavery. We aren't slaves, we're sons. He wants to say as a father, this is how you live and this is why you do what you do. And if you feel this way and choose this way, then eventually you will live a life that is full of freedom in this way. Almost 2,000 years ago, this truth that we're talking about was put on trial by people just like us. People who wanted to judge, people who wanted to evaluate. I'll ponder some of this. 
compartmentally, I like portions of the sermon. There's things that I just don't believe are that well thought out. I did not like the cookie analogy at all or the child thing. I'm going to email about that later. <laughs> My son's name is Jimmy, right? Those are the kind of emails I get. That's fine. <laughs> no problem. Maybe his name's Brad. I don't know. Almost 2,000 years ago, this truth was put on trial, and it was judged by people just like us, evaluating just like us what we like, what we don't like, what we believe, what we don't believe, what we're going to email about, not email about. It was just like us, and trying to figure out what this thing was, this person was who said he had all the answers. In fact, all for our sake, truth faced six trials in less than one full day, three of which were religious and three that were legal. After being arrested, the truth was first led to a man named Annas, a corrupt former high priest of the Jews. Annas broke numerous Jewish laws during the trial, including holding the trial in his house, trying to induce self-accusations against the defendant, and striking the defendant who had been convicted of nothing at the time. After Annas, the truth was led to the reigning high priest, Caiaphas, who happened to be Annas' son-in-law. Before Caiaphas and the Jewish Sanhedrin, many false witnesses came forward to speak against the truth, yet nothing could be proved and no evidence of wrongdoing could be found. When morning came, the third trial of the truth took place with the, with the result that the Jewish Sanhedrin pronounced that the truth should die. However, the Jewish council had no legal right to carry out the death penalty, so they were forced to bring the truth to the Roman governor at the time, a man named Pontius Pilate. As the truth stood before Pontius Pilate, beaten and bloodied, more lies were brought against him. Things were said like, we found this man misleading our nation. He was forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. We know that that's all lies, everything except the king part. After this, a very interesting conversation between the truth and the owner or ruler of the people, took place. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium. And he summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me what have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered and said, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Listen to these words. For this I have been born, and for this I come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, like you're saying right now, what is the truth? The stark reality is that Pilate, like us, was in the room spending time directly with the origin of all truth on that early morning over 2,000 years ago. 
through the Holy Spirit, we right now are spending time with the origin of all truth. We are connecting and wrestling and questioning his agenda and his plan, and we're weighing it against our own view of how we see things. We're deciding whether or not this God is real or fake, whether or not he's guilty or innocent, (laughs) whether or not we're going to believe and be freed by what he's offering, or we're going to send him out to be crucified and die a death of what some might say is oblivion. Pilate and the Jewish leaders refused to see the living truth in front of them. Are you? Am I? I guarantee because I do believe there's areas in my life that I don't understand. There's areas in my life that I've not fully given over that, 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 I, that there must be points that I'm judging God just doesn't know enough about me for his truth, his scripture, his words, the way that friends and family and people in my life have convicted me about some of my own behaviors. I just, I just, I just don't know if that's truth enough. I can't decide if, if I'm going to buy into that part of it. I just, need to, I just need to own it. I just need to sit in it. And yet the reality is that like Pilate and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought they were judging Christ when in reality, they were the ones being judged. Like the old man said to the young man, God's not on trial here. His truth doesn't need you to believe it. You are. I am. Did you actually think you were walking in here today to evaluate whether or not what was going to be said was truth? Did you actually think that you were going to listen to these words and then decide if they should apply to your life? I just got to make sure I step back and take a look at all the evidence. Did you actually think that in some way you were participating in experiencing what really is the most magnificent reality of all time, which is that Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, and sets people free? Did you believe that? Did I believe that? We're supposed to be people who live in freedom. We're supposed to be people who understand what it means to live inside the way that God has asked us to live. And yet when truth enters our life so many times, we go, "Eh, I like this part. I like this part. I'm going to leave this part. I'm sorry, friends, but that's not truth. That's not how it works. True north is always true north. That's not a little bit of true north there, a little bit of true north there, a little bit of true north there. That's why your life is a little bit of faith and a little bit of following and a whole lot of messed up. Now, it may look good on the outside because some of you are really good at polishing stuff. I mean, you have dialed in everything that people ask about. You've got those five things. Okay, you're fit, right? You got your family. You got some pretty good friends. You've got your finance. It's four F's. You know the one that's missing? Faith. Even that, you show up consistent enough that when people talk about church, you know what's going on. You just don't actually know what's going on. See, here's the beautiful thing about today's sermon. Truth sets you free. The opposite of truth is oblivion or forgetfulness. So when I asked you earlier today, have you been honest about whether or not you were the one that you thought 
was going to evaluate whether truth impacted your life. If you really want to be honest about the things in your life that are opposite of truth, you have to start by realizing you won't even remember those things. Because you've already forgot them. They're so much a part of who you are. Because the opposite of truth is oblivion or forgetfulness. And so if you really want to know if you're living your life outside the rhythms of God, you'd have to stop and ask God, the Holy Spirit, the one who prompts you to prompt you about the areas in your life that he wants to remind you because he's a God who never forgets that he wants to reign. That's why this sermon, like last week's sermon, is just rough on me. Last week's sermon during 9 o'clock, I gave, I, I don't, you guys didn't experience this. 9 o'clock, I was preaching like I'm preaching right now, hitting myself with these boomerang words like, stop it, that hurts, stop it, that hurts, stop it, that hurts. At the end, I was supposed to go into this really cool element. Instead, I made them put up a one-minute countdown timer, and I said, think about that, and I walked off stage. It was terrible. But I needed a minute to calm down or I was going to preach myself into a pile. <laughs> right now, these are the things I'm asking of myself. Do I know where in my life I need freedom? Do I actually know or have I forgotten because they become such a habitual part of my personality and who I am that when people go, man, that wasn't very kind, you, you, that wasn't very uh, compassionate, or hey, that, that doesn't seem to fit inside the rhythm of what I read in the Bible, I'm like, man, you have a problem. That's your truth. I don't say it. I just think it. I'm like, oh, thanks for letting me know. I say it with my eyes. Right? That, that's what I do. Some of you say it with your mouths. Some of you say it with your attendance. You just don't show up for a few weeks because you're like, I'm going to wait until they're done with this series. I'll be back at Christmas, right? <laughs> you live in a place where you have forgotten even what it is you habitually do that keeps you out of the symphony and harmony of God's goodness in your life. You can't really think that at the end of your life, you're going to look back and be like, paid the house off, stayed married the whole time, kids are all healthy, and I got a cool car. Life was good. Bring it death. That's it? If that's it, I'm pretty sure we could put a 12-month plan together and get everybody there. I don't think that's it. I think it's, I, I think it's, was my heart where it should have been? Did I help who I was supposed to help? Was I the man I was supposed to be? Did I ask God, what is it that you see in me that I've forgotten? What are the oblivious places in my life that are keeping me from living how you want me to live? And God, will you remind me? Will you prompt me? Will you replace? Scripture talks about this very specifically. This is called a heart of stone, right? This heart of pride, this heart of self-centeredness, this heart that all humans are born with that we wrestle with that is our true north. And God says, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh can be broken, can be pierced, can, 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 can stop, can hurt, feels. Who wants a heart of flesh? I want a heart of stone all day long. But it's never just an in and out. It's a slow process. And there are pieces in my life right now, I guarantee, guaranteed in my heart due to my story, due to my experiences that are still really stony. And I don't feel them. I don't even remember them. I've built habits around them. I mean, now they're probably praised. I've got a mouth on me and it is an issue. And yet this is what I do. So I'm like, no, no, communicating's good, communicating's good. And then all of a sudden, I'll just destroy somebody with a 15-second inconsiderate comment. And I'm like, oh. But then I'm like, but you know what? More good than bad. More good than bad. I help more people than I hurt. I'm out. That's, that's crazy. I don't say it out loud. I say it with my eyes. Okay, I don't say it to anybody out loud. But it's true. You have areas in there as well. Stop judging. You have stuff in your life that if you were really honest with people, you've forgotten you even do. 
And you do it all the time. You may have made a whole career out of it. Like you're a helper. Except you actually just help and help and help and help and help and never actually stop to ask why you're helping, why you're saving, why you're leading, why you're teaching, why you're earning, why you're building. Why? Because God has given you these gifts that in freedom he can make well and whole. But if you don't figure out that place, then you will live in bondage. And yes, this world will be a wonderful owner for a season. But even the best, most well-cared-for slave is still a slave. I'm a son, and I mess up. And I've got a father who knows it. And sometimes I mess up, and I realize it, and I go to him, and he says, here's what we're going to do. And sometimes I go to him, and I go, hey, I don't know what you're seeing in my life, but there's some stuff in my life. I'm sure he's like, yeah, yeah, I meant to talk to you about that. Thanks for asking. Here's the three things you forgot. (laughs) That's what dads do, right? That's what they're supposed to do. That's what this father who wants to free you wants to do. Can you be truthful today about your own need for freedom? Can you be truthful that you, that you need this, that, that it's not you who's judging but being judged? We are called to be people, First Peter says, people who live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. Mm. There's people in this room, and you're, you're using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You're using the fact that nobody knows that you've got stuff inside. At least you're not like these people. And it's a cover-up for your own brokenness and your own stuff, and it doesn't leave, lead to lives filled with his purposes and his plans for you. God loves you so much. He is so ready to walk with you. He is so ready, and he will wait for you, and he will sit with you, and he will be with you, and he believes in you, and his presence is here now. And he is more than willing to wrestle with you like he was with Pilate that day. What is truth? He is truth. And he is ready. And he is excited about the life that you could build with him if you're willing. That life is really easy to recognize. It's it's easy to recognize because people uh, (laughs) people are are different. I uh, was in California most of this week at a conference helping train um, uh, some uh, pastors and local leaders on some different things. And on the plane, on the way there, I was uh, in the, uh, the terminal waiting to get on my plane. And this, this man who was about 75 years old walked up. I, I, his name was Don. And Don walked up and somebody said, Don, did you get your old fashioned? And he goes, nope. And he kind of did this little hunch, which drew me to look at him. And he goes, but that's okay. And then he just did this little old man dance, like, true story right in front of me and I was like and they laughed the whole group laughed and he goes I'm all right I'm all right and he walked over to somebody said how you doing and they were like oh you know and he started talking and they had a great conversation and we got on the plane Don sat in front of me right to the right him and his wife I listened to multiple conversations and every once in a while she'd say something and he replied with funny and then all I could see is the top of his head dancing in his seat I was like that's crazy the girl next to me said, where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to uh, Orange County. I'm going to be uh, spending some time with some pastors and doing stuff. She goes, are you going to this conference? I said, yeah. She goes, I am too. So are they. And they both turned around, including Don. Like, <laughs> Don was a retired pastor. And Don glowed for Jesus the entire weekend. Don danced for me at least six different times. Didn't even know it. 
Danny, that was a great talk, great thing. I was like, I didn't know what he was doing. I don't know why he was doing it. But what I knew is there's something free about Don that I want. It's a man who followed Jesus. It's a man who was like, hey, I'm, I'm in. I, I love this life. And, I've, and, I, and I'm going to say lived one that was, that was glorious, I'm guessing. Even if it was glorious and it's surrender only. See, those faces, I get to experience those, and, and you don't all the time. And I think that's why sometimes it's so hard to really see freedom and understand it. We did a baptism service on Friday at our downtown building, and I get really excited about baptism. And sometimes it used to bother me that more people didn't show up for baptisms. Like when we have baptisms, I feel like it should be standing room only because you're watching people that are, that are, that are actually professing freedom in God, this very thing, that they believe the truth of Jesus Christ and that he saved their soul and that he is gonna do something new in their life. And so they get in the water, they go under the old person with the heart of stone and they come up the new, the heart of flesh. That's what the whole thing's about. Someone told me, hey, don't take it personal. It's not that we don't get it excited. It's just that nobody gets as excited as you, and you have high expectations for us. And I said, then, then maybe that's your truth, not my truth. But maybe what I do know is that, is that these faces close up bring incredible amounts of freedom and glory to the creator and to the creation, to the son and to the child. And so I didn't want to miss that freedom this week. And so this particular baptism, instead of just me being close up, I asked a well-known photographer in our community to come behind the scenes and take pictures of what this freedom might look like. When you're free in God, you dance. When you're free in God, you praise Him. When you're free in God, you wrestle. I don't know exactly what that freedom looks like, but I think maybe it looks like this. Maybe it looks like this. <laughs> or this. Just maybe it looks like this. That's my friend Colton. Is Colton here? I'm not going to make you stand up. He's here though. Yeah. I kind of want to make you stand up. <laughs> Colton's been on an amazing journey and I'm not going to get into it. That's freedom for him. That's what God's offering every person in this room. It's that freedom to embrace and be with someone. To raise hands and be with God. It's freedom to be done performing. Done presenting. It's freedom to just be you. The dad you're supposed to be, the husband you're supposed to be, the, the friend you're supposed to be, the mom you're supposed to be, the wife you're supposed to be, the single person you're supposed to be. It's freedom to live in the Spirit and respond to His love. That's freedom. 
There's people in this room right now, and you want to experience that freedom. So I'm going to ask that all the eyes in the room close. And if you have never experienced the freedom of God in your life, if you've never accepted Christ in your life, I just want you to pray this very simple prayer. Start off by saying, God, it's me. It's me. You've been waiting for me for for a very long time. And I'm ready. I turn and face you now, Lord. I recognize that you died on the cross. That you paid for my sins, that you forgave me. That you restored relationship with me. That you brought me into harmony with you. And so, God, I ask that you would come into my life and transform me from the inside out. That, Lord, you would remove my heart and the parts of my heart of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. You would never leave me, Lord. You would forgive me, restore me, renew me. That you would call me son or daughter. With all the eyes still closed, I want to talk to other people in this room. Those of you who, you know who Jesus is. But you've forgotten who you are. You have parts of your life that you just live in oblivion that you don't even know how you got there. I'm going to ask that you stop running just for a moment and that you turn and face the spirit that's sitting in front of you, the spirit of truth. I'm going to ask that you wrestle today, right now, with the bondage you feel in your life compared to the freedom the Spirit has been offering you. And I'm going to ask that you, God, I'm going to ask for a lifting in this room for people who are carrying that burden, the burden of addiction, the burden of, of, uh, of, of uh, unforgiveness, God, the burden, the burden of, of past mistakes, Lord. I'm going to ask that there's a lifting in this room right now, a restoring, a renewing, a remaking of people, of humans in this room right now. And that there would just be a a presence of the Holy Spirit's power as he lifts God from the backs, from the minds, from the hands of every person in this room. Things they've done, things they've said, things they've forgotten. I'm going to ask, Lord, that there would be a cleansing in this room. That there would be a sense of people, God, who are coming forward. Who are raising their hands and raising their eyes and proclaiming you holy. Lord, I ask that in this room, you would touch every single soul. That they would feel the freedom you want to bring to them. That they would feel the power and the restoration you want to bring to them. And Lord, I'm going to ask that they would leave here changed forever, for it is because of your freedom, it is because of your love, it is because of your hope, it is because of your presence, it is because of your design, it is because of your song, because of your words, because of your love and truth and purpose that every soul in this room can experience more life than they ever had before in harmony with you and with each other. I'm going to ask God you bond us in this place. We leave here never the same that we see our families this Thanksgiving never the same. 
just allow freedom to reign here. We praise you, God. We lift this time to you, God, and all of your people said, Amen. 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 If you prayed that prayer of salvation specifically, um, please, please, please fill out a communication card. We want to get someone to follow up with you. Also, if you need prayer because of other things that are happening, let us know. We want to make sure and have someone call and pray with you. Will you stand up? Will you stand up? We're just going to close this service with a song proclaiming the freedom that God brings. Let's just lift up his holy name. Lift up his presence. Lift up your voices. Lift up your hands. Let's bring glory to him who brings us all that we are. in this place.